What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from TeamPay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, Tales from the Finance Department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Dan Fletcher. Dan is a CFO at Planful, a company that provides a comprehensive solution with end-to-end capabilities for finance and accounting teams. Planful is everything finance needs to quickly deliver accurate plans, reports, and insights to every corner of the business. Thanks for being here, Dan. It's my my pleasure, uh, Peter. And I, I may slip up for the guests and call you Pete every now and then. You and I uh, oh. have a little bit of history here. And uh, so you just stop me. Slap me on the wrist if you don't want me to do that. <laughs> oh, good, Dan. So our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because finance is often forced to ask employees awkward questions about company spend, such as, why didn't you get this purchase approved in advance? Or why'd you just put 20K on our corporate credit card when our policy says you can only put 5K on? So I want to kick this off with the most awkward conversation you had to deal with with an employee or maybe just as a finance professional in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so mine mm-hmm. is a little less um, intense, you could say, or, or hilarious, but it has layers. And so but, but first, before I get into it, I'll just say that there's really three groups in any business that that, that have stories upon stories that are quali- qualifiers for awkward conversations. So one is HR, uh, another is legal, and then there's finance, finance and accounting, right? So we, we all are sort of guardrails against the business um, doing something super risky or getting out over its skis in some way. And as part of being those guardrails, we catch a lot of stuff. Um, or stuff comes to us. And when I say stuff, I usually mean spend or behavior that um, falls outside of uh, the best interest of the business. So, you know, you could, I would suggest have at some point have HR on here too, have legal, you know, I want to tell mm-hmm. you how to run your podcast, but it's those three groups. And so I have, you know, probably a hundred stories, uh, Peter, that I could, I could go through that qualify for this, but there's one mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting because it shows the gray area here on, on spend. So I was the interim VP finance for a, a really large distributor business. I'm not going to, I don't want to narc on this business or anyone who was involved. So I'm going <laughs> to keep it vague, but, but um, really large business uh, distributor. So the reason I say that is really large businesses, they spend a little bit more than really small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changes the, the lens through which we look at something like uh, employee travel and entertainment expense. So I, as the interim VP finance, and I was there for a while, right? Really more of a regular than an interim. I was probably about a year in and, and had gotten a sense of the culture and the key players on the sales team. And it was a very sales-driven culture, um, as, as many successful businesses are. And all those expenses, once they reach a certain threshold, those being travel and entertainment expenses, came through me. I was sort of the uh, filter for for my CFO who was busy with the debt markets and big strategic plans. So I had to be the bad guy, bad cop on this, right? Mm-hmm. And an expense came across um, me for me that was something, it was north of $20,000. And this is like 2015. 
um, just to, to index. I know we're in an inflationary environment, but it was a big, <laughs> it's a big expense, single receipt expense for a, a T&E submission, right? And this business, because it was so big, had a PO threshold above that. And we, you and I can get into what that means and PO thresholds versus T&E mm -hmm. and how that can can change yeah. the the situation. I know team pay plays in both those spaces. But for me, this came through, you know, what was at the time concur, it was their expense system and I had to approve it, right? So I'm obviously gonna go look at what it is and and the employee had a receipt. Um, there was no attempt to obscure yep. or fake the expense, but it was a Rolex. And the Rolex was given as an anniversary gift to one of the top sales gals. And this is by a sales manager. And so, you know, my immediate thought is, hey, you know, obviously it's splashy and flashy and, you know, perhaps sets a bad precedent, but this very likely is in policy. Um, it's an anniversary. We mm -hmm. do do anniversary bonuses or gifts. I knew that. And so I went and did some sleuthing and, you know, found out that this was a bit above the, the allowed gift limit, but the manager is entitled to make an exception if there's you know, a uh, budget mm -hmm. for it, et cetera, et cetera. So it turns out that it was largely in policy at this business. Wow. So, but this, when I say there's layers, Pete, I meant there's layers, right? And so as I'm doing this investigation, I asked is, I hear a lot about the relationship between those two and is it different or unique in any way than the relationship with the other sales executives? Because I had not approved a bunch of Rolex watches, right? And it yeah. turns out these two were... I don't know if they were officially dating, but there was something going on there, which, you know, was more of an HR matter than a finance yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, apparently it was known and it was fine. But, you know, then it got mm -hmm. into the question of, well, is this preferential treatment or we're setting a bad precedent and, and on and on. Right. But as I dug, I found out, OK, well, they had been friendly, but they had sort of broken off the relationship. And there were some rumblings that this was an attempt to, you know, sort of. <laughs> smooth things over uh, a really nice rolex for your anniversary at the company to win her back right and so anyway I, I it was like an onion on an onion ultimately you know the way i looked at it was it was in policy and you know i don't want to bore your audience but the irs has certain rules about what's deductible it has to be ordinary yeah. and necessary and because we're in the practice and the industry was in the practice of doing nice gifts for salespeople on their anniversary, it was deemed ordinary and necessary, you know, it just has to be helpful for the business. And certainly yep. retaining this was one of the top performing salespeople. It made mm -hmm. sense. And so it went through, but it was just funny chasing that down the rabbit hole and uncovering all this yeah. more HR related stuff than uh, T&E stuff. Or relax for their uh, top performer. That's 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 a pretty good one, man. I, I, we should maybe in the wrong business. We should be there on the sales team uh, getting ourselves Rolexes instead of being CFOs. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Dan. I want to just jump into some you know other questions. I like you know we've been friends for a while. I've loved your career, and it, you know it spans over a decade of private equity financial operations experience. And you know I think you really specialize in these sort of post acquisition performance improvement, like interim management, organizational transformation. Like you jump in and just go solve problems, you know, especially in this sort of an acquisition. Can you tell me like more about your background, like how you got into this and like, what exactly do you do? I know I'm probably not, you know, doing it justice. Sure. You know, I can, you know, I don't know. I don't f officially know your, your audience here, Pete. I mean, I, I did a little research. I was thinking, okay, what is the average amount of people we could expect to listen to awkward conversations 
Because mm-hmm. that'll influence, you know, what you say. You might be a little more buttoned up if it's a broader, yeah. broader group. And so I'll tailor my message to that broad group because I think that's how my career flows and shows that mm-hmm. within within finance and accounting, there are a lot of different avenues, um, which I think is one of the, the beautiful things about our profession is that, yeah. you know, you really can find your level and find your place. Um, and my meanders. So I started out as as a big four accountant at PwC, mm-hmm. right as it, as fate would have it, in into the teeth of the Great Recession. So right in two thousand eight, two thousand seven, mm-hmm. two thousand eight um, is when I started my career there, and I was actually working with a lot of their big financial institution clients. So talk about sort of a, a baptism by fire. You know, there are times when I would walk in. Uh, to to the client and a whole floor would just suddenly be dark and and it turned out over the past two weeks that group was just told to walk so certainly jarring um, but also I learned a ton right and and certainly learned a ton about um, what people do in moments of crisis to pull together and and make decisions that that can keep the company afloat and keep each other afloat so I did that for the classic kind of auditor uh, role is like after two and a half, three years, a lot of people poke their head up and they say, I've got all this great experience. I can either keep mm-hmm. doing this or I can go apply that experience somewhere else. Something that maybe is a little bit more cross-functional, a little bit more strategic. It just depends, right? Uh, I think audit is a great career. I personally was really interested in investing. I had worked at a lot of asset managers at PwC and and met and socialized with a lot of people who are allocating capital. And I was interested in making that leap. So I went and did that. And over the next four years, I was first at the LP level, the limited partner level, which deploys assets to general partners or fund managers. Mm-hmm. And, and that was at Allstate Investments. And I did about a year there allocating capital to a variety of what, what you call alternative investments, uh, one of which was private equity and sort of fell in love with the idea that you can take companies that haven't achieved their potential and you can deploy uh, some really smart and dedicated people mm-hmm. into those businesses and help them achieve their potential, which is the way I view private yeah. equity. Others <laughs> may view it differently, but that's, that's a, been, a pretty been my generous view of private that. equity. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I hear you. Oh, I think, you know, like any industry, uh, there's variety, right? And and the 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 P funds I'd worked with, I mean, that is their goal, right? Is to create value for mm-hmm. their investors, many of which are, you know, your mother's pension fund and and your grandmother's. And so, you, you know, you can look at it in many different lenses, but, you know, I really wanted in to PE. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love sort of the operational model there of creating value for their stakeholders. And so I went and I worked at a mid-market P investment firm for two and a half years and, um, you know, found a lot of joy in, in running the models mm-hmm. and being behind the scenes. But what I didn't expect to find out, and this probably resonates with you because you, Peter, are an operator, yeah. is that I sort of quickly enjoyed the work with the management teams more than I did being that model jockey yeah. um, and, and sort of running valuation models and and pulling down comps mm-hmm. and and um, so great skills to have and, and and I still use those today. Mm-hmm. Um, but my next step was going to be operational yeah. always, and so I went and I did what we call, call sort of outsourced operating partner work. For for the listeners who aren't super familiar with the private equity ecosystem, you have the investment teams and you have the operating teams, and the operating teams um, they do help get deals done from an oper- operational diligence lens, but then they really slot in and their work starts after acquisition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pete, you mentioned post-acquisition performance improvement. That's the stuff, mm-hmm. right? So there's a group called uh, PEPI, Private Equity Performance Improvement, yeah. 
at uh, great catchy name, right, Pepe, at at Alvarez and Marsal, and I went and worked there for four and a half years, and you wear a lot of different hats there. Mm-hmm. My role there was to take interim leadership roles. You know, at one point I was a VP of marketing, wow. at, at another point VP finance, at another point controller. So it's a great sort of crucible for all sorts of experience, and that's what they do. You know, they just throw you in, and they rely on your training and and your um, sort of good intentions uh, to get stuff done. So anyway, and then that leads me to today, right? So I did that for four and a half years and always wanted to go back in to a fund Mm -hmm. uh, on the operating team, which I did with, with fund called Vector Capital. And my role with Vector Capital is to take leadership roles in companies they invest in. One of our big backers at Plantful is Vector Capital, great partner. And I've been the CFO here for a total of two years now. Um, although I took a break in the middle to go be CFO for a year and a half of a database company. That's another <laughs> part. This is not a database data management podcast, so I'll save that yeah, for a different time. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a long meandering. The reason um, that mm-hmm. that I wanted to highlight that whole thing is it just shows, right? You can, you can start with the assumption that you want to learn a bunch and then go be an investor and end up as an operator, right? It's really choose your own adventure. Yeah. And I think that's a, maybe, maybe we double click a little bit on that kind of transition as well. Like do you think, you know, coming, lot, again, this this podcast is for folks who are looking for CP credit, you know, just more education on finance accounting. You know, if they're sitting in either an auditor's shoes or even an accounting team internal to a house, like, is is this, like, like how does someone move to, like, the is it Alvarez Marshall, you said? Um, the, uh, Alvarez the and Marsal, yeah. It's a Marcel, good yeah. management consulting firm. Yeah, yeah. So like, how, how does someone who from, the, uh, from an auditor, um, you know, background move into that without, you know, taking time as an investor? Can they just jump into that? Like, if someone wants that sort of career path, what's what are some of your advice there specifically? Oh, it's a good question. So I think there's a perception that you do get put a little bit in a box in, in a role. If you start out as mm-hmm. an accountant, you might be put in that kind of auditor box. And if you start out as a, finance, a corporate finance sort of accounts payable person, you might be put in that box. And I think it's it's up to you. Mm-hmm. I think there's two ways that you. One of them is networking. I mean, that was my my superpower for shifting across roles and, and industries was just building a a network. And that wasn't necessarily something I did intentionally, but you know, some of the people that would would help me land um, a key role were people I played Thursday night basketball with. Mm-hmm. And it just it just so happens that if you have sort of an open posture to to forging new relationships and you keep in touch with those people and they know what you do and you know what they do, that you open more doors. Um, this is not revelatory. Mm-hmm. This is not the first time your audience will hear that having a big network is helpful, mm-hmm. but it really is a superpower if you're looking to uh, kind of jump across lanes. And then the second thing would be seek cross-functional experience in your current role whenever you can so that you have proof points to bring when you mm-hmm. submit a resume across lane. You know, you want, Let's say you're an accountant and you want to go to finance, right? Let's hope that you've worked on some special projects and partnered with with finance at times and have that on your resume so you understand the day-to-day and the requirements of that job. I'll give you an example. Maybe you're, you're a controller who wants to be a VP finance. Uh, one good way to cut your teeth on something that's forward-looking, which is one of the big differences between accounting and finance, is that finance is often look, looking forward and mm-hmm. with projections, and accounting is often very, very focused on getting the actual activity correct. But one way to get forward-looking experience would be to say, I would like to own all cash forecasting. You know, I manage treasury, and so I have good detail on cash flow. I want to own that direct method cash forecast and all the covenant compliance that comes with it, um, which is, in fact, what my controller does here at Planful. She has a forward-looking part of her job, and I know that someday I think 
I don't want to speak for, but she has mm-hmm. CFO potential. And one of the proof points she'll bring is I have forecasting in my patch and have had it in there for X number of years. Awesome. Well, th- thanks for the quick segue on that. I think that's really helpful. So you, you were talking about your, your kind of path into sort of interim CFO leadership at Planful. Um, I guess, you know, you said you've been there for a, two years total, but six months in this, this term. Like what drew to you Planful in the first place? Sure. Um, first of all, I don't know if the resolution shows, but this is a purple shirt. Mm-hmm. Now, I want my marketing team, if they ever listen to this, to know that I was representing because Planful's primary branding color is purple. So I'm, I'm really representing today, Pete. And then, so what drew me to Planful? This is my chance to sort of um, let my company shine, yeah. right? And I'm a huge believer. So you mentioned at the beginning, I think it was a really good talk track, right? It's an end-to-end system, everything mm-hmm. you need as a finance and accounting team to solve your budgeting, forecasting, analysis, mm-hmm. and reporting needs. And that's what it is. It is a platform that that covers some crucial workflows. That's how I think mm-hmm. uh, I think about all the work that we do in workflows. So you've got one big one, which is record to report, and another one, which is planning, budgeting, and analysis. And these things are, are very related. But on the record to report side of things, we have two really great modules capabilities. One of them is automated consolidation, and then the other is automated reporting. And I could talk for literally hours about just each of those. So well, for all you finance and accounting people out there, I won't do that because I know you're familiar with how painful consolidating uh, financials are, you know, rolling mm-hmm. up multiple trial balances, sometimes from multiple uh, general ledger systems mm-hmm. or, or multiple entities and currencies. And so I think that one of Planful's most powerful capabilities is automating that consolidation. And many, many of our customers would say that if they were forced to, to say what, what the last product they would let you rip out of their cold, dead hands are, it would be console. If you have that problem, then solving it with an automated tool yeah. is, is number one. And then the reporting, you know, for all of you who've dumped out a trial balance and run it through some Excel model, three-statement model, um, you know that breaks and, and you're kind of constantly tweaking it. Oh, that variance is calculating wrong or who deleted that row or, you know, we forgot to convert the currency or someone booked a two, $2 million accrual in, you know, uh, uh, employee coaching. And, and that's clearly a fat finger. Now I got to go fix that. Mm-hmm. So automating that, you know, push button reporting that can be just distributed into people's inboxes is um, another really good thing. And then Another really good thing. That's selling you short. It's <laughs> it's really it's really a massive value add that free. So both those things free up the accounting finance teams to to do the fun mm-hmm. stuff. And then on the planning and budgeting, you know, this is a tool that allows you one source of truth and, and you know, mm-hmm. really helpful workflows that set up each department's, you know, templates where they've got their headcount, they've got their non-headcount, and they they want to be able to iterate on that as they produce the annual plan and then it needs the right approvals, mm-hmm. and gathering the right inputs. So we do all that. And then on a monthly basis, it's automated rolling forecasts. Um, and then we also have, uh, you know, really uh, what I call modeling engine yeah. for things like sales capacity, commissions, calculations, pipeline conversion, whatever you want to do, right? That feeds into your financial plans. Yeah. I mean, I think this really resonates. I mean, you know, what brought me to team pay in the first place also as a head of finances, you know, getting a chance to work with software that like makes my life substantially easier. And I definitely see the value for you as like, it was, it brought you there the first time. And I guess maybe my, my question follow up is like, what brought you back? Like, it sounds like you were, you did took another interim CFO gig elsewhere. I'm um, at this data company. Like what brought you back to Planful? Yeah, it's really two things. It's, it's the, it's the, uh, well, really three things. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, it's a team. So I'll just give a little bit of color there because it makes it look like I left, right? So 
my role was to come in, you know, at, at Plantful and sort of set up the processes, recruit the team, get the systems in place, the policies, the governance. And usually that takes a year, year and a half. And so that was my role, right? And then recruit my replacement and go on mm -hmm. and do it again, which I did at a database company, great company called MarkLogic. As I did the same thing there and, and neared the end of that, I was interacting with the Plantful team who are, are good friends of mine. And I had heard that the company and mm -hmm. I knew that the company had really, really taken off. I mean, I had been there for the tough sledding and the company was now like a rocket ship, right? Great growth, you know, mm -hmm. uh, profitability. And so I was wow. pretty envious yeah. and, and I made some crack like, well, if you ever need a, a CFO, right? And, and then it started this conversation, which is, you know, we think yeah, yeah. we, the, the team there think that your particular approach is really good for a growing business. And, you know, we would be excited to have you back. And, mm -hmm. and that just started the conversation. Um, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to go back, work with a team I love with a product I use and love and can, can sit here and look you in the eye on a podcast and say, I love, right. Um, and I'm sure you use team pay at team pay, right. That's a pretty unique yeah, yeah. and fun thing to be able to do is understand and be a representative of your product. And then the last one is the market. I, I just think it is a shame that more finance and accounting professionals don't benefit from automated solutions and are stuck doing that manual work. It's 2022. You know, we've been screaming at the top of our lungs, yeah. we being software vendors, for 15, 20 years that more finance and accounting teams should take advantage of this stuff. And it's still a huge white space and an unpenetrated market. That excites me. You know, I think finance accounting, they're they're conservative buyers of software and and they kind of are, if it's not broken, um, I'm not gonna fix it, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's not vibrating, I don't wanna take the risk of automating it and being in a worse position. There's a million objections, right? Yep. But I think it's 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 headed the direction of other departments, marketing sales that have been leveraging great software for a long time, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's really interesting your sort of approach here. Like I, I talk about this a lot, in, um, I mean, probably not in this podcast, but in many other webinars I've done, is around like thinking about, you know, when you were thinking about your career of like, thinking of the companies you choose to work for like an investor, like what you just pitched me was your investment thesis on, you know, on Planful, which is like big TAM, good product, underpenetrated, all this sort of stuff. And I think that's actually really good advice for anyone as well around just thinking through, you know, what makes a good company and, you know, beyond just like the role and the function and the career, the career trajectory, but like what makes the company I want, I, I'm looking at a good company. That's a really good point, but, but you also said it. So the personal opportunity there maybe is one lens that you, you need to mm -hmm. believe that the culture is a great fit, that you have opportunities to get where you want to go in your career. But yeah, I absolutely look at it through the macro lens too. So you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, maybe why don't you talk about why, why what attracted you yeah. to team pay? Yeah, it's, it's very, very similar, you know, it's uh, beyond being a, a two time, two time user before and like it really being a problem I felt around, you know, the insanity of expense reports and shared corporate cards and, you know, lack of controls and visibility in the finance function, which I was really surprised with. Like, I think very similar. I came from a private equity background and investment banking background, which you deal with financials at a very high level. But I guess I always assumed stuff was dealt or managed very well at companies. And I always assumed that the data was clean. Once you got in the, once I got in the weeds really for the first time and like approved my first expense reports and managed my first month in close, I was like, wow, this is like really brutally painful and manual and really error prone. And like the confidence I have in the numbers I'm sharing with the board and the management team is relatively low because to your point, people miscategorize things or just 
I'm taking I used to I call it best guess accounting. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know what this is, but I need to close the books today. So we're going to call this T&E. And all that sort of stuff is just like so miserable. And so I think that was a big, big thing around that sort of empathy for other finance users out there is like, yeah, like there's there's such a better way. And like so much of it stuck to your point around, you know, just doing the way we've always done it. It's not totally on fire or I'm busy and like I've got audit coming up or I've got month and close coming up of like, you know, being able to like bring in, you know, good, good tools that actually make our lives substantially better. And so that, you know, that was a big piece of that. And, and I think with that, I think for me, like, I, I, I feel, you know, blessed in that way. Like there's plenty of other companies I work for. Like I see the TAM and I see the market, but like I just can't get out of the bed about this sort of software or whatever. And like, it's, it's really, I think there's a definitely a motivating factor around that sort of, you know, helping a bunch of my peers, you know, have, you know, have better experiences with, um, you know, in their careers and allow them to do more strategic things ultimately. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's not, it's different. You're not working at a, a building products distributor where, you know, mm-hmm. you may use those products when you're redoing your deck, but it's not your day to day. So there's a certain yeah. joy of, of being a user and, and really deeply understanding the product that, that your coders are, are writing and, and putting in the hands of customers. What do you think? So I've been exploring this thought lately and if mm-hmm. I'm going off off the uh, agenda here you you stop me but we've been exploring it, this this uh conversation lately thought and conversation mm-hmm. which is you know why are finance and accounting professionals on balance more hesitant to adopt technology and you know there's multiple threads you can tug at here you know one is just they don't often have big budgets for non-headcount opex right or capex whatever you, you know how depending on the the licensing structure Another is that it's fear of, of kind of being eliminated because you've automated that, that work, right? Which is a fear across categories. And another is this kind of fear of the implementation and bad experiences with past implementations. So what of those three, or would you add four and, and maybe like, which of those do you think resonates with you as being a primary contributor to that hesitancy? Yeah, you know, I think all those things resonate with me. Um, I think everyone who's probably been in this job for more than a couple of years has lived through at least a few implementations and some of those being poor or just not really living up to what the promise was or the, desi- the, de- the desired outcome is. And uh, frankly, most of those times are internal. Like, you know, we had a, f- a prior company had a failed implementation of ERP. We paid for it and then got busy and never implemented it. And it wasn't their fault. I mean, yep. it was hard to implement, but like it was really us just not estimating the bandwidth that we need internally. And I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble of like, and I, I, I talk about this a lot of like building in capacity to your team to take on projects like this. If you're already working a 40 hour a week and your rest of your teams are working a 40 hour a week, there is no time to go do another project. So you need to have build capacity for your team on a headcount side to just even implement, learn a new tool. Ultimately, there's going to be some sort of like, you know, like you think of the J curve of SaaS of like the, co- you know, you think of like, I work in the you know, SaaS world as well. Of like there's going to be, an investment period where I'm essentially losing time and resources as I learn this new thing and adapt, you know, implement it and integrate it and that sort of thing. So I think there's that piece. I think the last piece that gets to me sometimes is around flexibility. I think finance people are so grown up in Excel and mm-hmm. it, it, we can, we can talk about how Excel and Google sheets have their issues in terms of version control and data quality and reliability. But like, there's a lot of, if, if some, I've, I've built a process for myself that works and it's very flexible. And then I'm going to have to use a tool that maybe be less flexible. And I think that's a piece that gets me a lot. And that like, is it just faster to just do it myself in Excel versus like when I, I can do exactly how I want. So I think there's that piece. If you think almost all these software categories we talk about, and I'm sure everyone uses is like around just really automating things that we're doing done in Excel and putting it into a system. Yep. Um, 
or a lot of that. And so I think that's, that's another thing that gets me. I, I think about this a lot too. Cause like I, you know, not only, yeah, of course I'm team pay sells software and, but like I'm, I'm constantly evaluating new vendors. I think that's a big piece of the role as a head of finance of like constantly thinking about like, how can we make this function more efficient, better for the company, better outcomes for the company. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes a vendor could be an answer, sometimes not. But, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm constantly thinking about like, what, what is the trigger for me to say, okay, now I need to go solve this problem. Is this a process problem, a people problem, or ultimately is it a, a, a system problem? And I think that's a sort of like, like decision making criteria. I'm, I, we, you know, even my team, we're about to set Q3 OKRs and projects for our finance team here at TeamPay. I'm like, hey, like, what are three areas of your function you want to improve this quarter? And like, some of those might have an answer to technology and some may not. Oh, that, that was a great set of, so first of all, you answered my question very well. And there's a great mm-hmm. set of criteria in there that could be sort of guiding light for teams as they think about what to automate and what not. Um, but I will, I'll just riff off one thing you said about Excel. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's a misconception that uh, us financial or fintech uh, tools out there hate, hate Excel. I don't hate Excel. You know, this is a product that's been out there uh, you know, tried and true for, for over 30 years now. And there's a reason is because it's, our, I always call it our beautiful canvas, right? It's mm-hmm. the, the most flexible thing, just spreadsheets. We don't even have to say Excel. Spreadsheets, whether they're in, in Google Sheets or, or Excel or whatever you use, are really, really good for certain things. And I, I don't think we'll ever stop using them, right? Yeah. Um, they're they're, they're our, our beautiful canvas, like I said, right? <laughs> but, they, we're, but you acknowledge, you know, where they break is very clear. And, and it's sort of repeatable processes with large volumes of data or, you know, things that you have to do quickly or things that have to change hands. Um, or any type of collaboration, although Sheets allows for pretty good collaboration now. Um, you know, these are just clear things that over those 30 years of Excel, we are sort of well-documented, right? And that's mm-hmm. what we're trying to do, is we're trying to build on the capabilities of an Excel-based tool, augment it, you know, keep, you know, I think if you yeah. do the right automation, you'll actually spend more time in Excel because it will automate the stuff that you know you weren't able to to automate and manual processes before and allow you to be doing more ad hoc analysis yeah. ROI modeling although I would hope you would yeah. do that in planful just to be clear um, <laughs> that's what I yeah. do so then no that's that's really interesting the, the way you think about it that way I think there's there's kind of some there's a, a, a background there of going on that we as finance and accounting professionals uh, obviously it adoption has increased. Adoption mm-hmm. of automation has increased beyond the ERP. That's why all these companies yeah. like yours and mine are doing so well, right? And so something has changed. And, and I think a big piece of that is we as finance and accounting professionals have gotten better at understanding what to automate, uh, understanding which vendors to, to automate with, and understanding how to s- ensure a successful implementation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the way I approach that is when I you know, join a new team or on a periodic basis, I, I kind of separate the witnesses and ask each of my people, uh, my team members, mm-hmm. to tell me their top three pain points in their job. Mm-hmm. And, and I develop yeah. out of that what I call a map of pain. And I look for <laughs> patterns. And where there's overlap, yeah. um, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, one of the things that surprised the crap out of me a couple of years ago was we had a lot of pain in our month out. And, and uh, I told my team, all right, this is painful. We're, we estimated that it was costing us three, um, one at close. So not great, right? Almost mm-hmm. half half that individual's close was dedicated toward that outreach and 
And so, you know, we found this company called Gapify yeah. that automates that. Mm -hmm. And that was just a very logical thing to automate. Multiple people said it was a pain point. Um, and, and so we had an appetite and it's that appetite that matters. You know, that's where you get the people to dedicate the four hours a week to that implementation. So, you know, that, that I think following the pain while it sounds depressing is, is, um, not a bad way to approach, uh, selecting what to automate. Yeah. Let me tie this back together with your sort of experience at Planful. You know, like you had a unique experience of being an arm CFO for a bit and coming back. And we just talked about sort of this framework around like, you know, people, processes, systems, you know, and I, I guess for me, I'm always, I always think about legacy and impact and like, was I actually as good as I thought I was? And I, I'm kind of curious, like, what were some of the things you implemented, people you hired, you know, processes you put in place at the beginning that were still there when you came back and were still working? And what were some of that did not work? You're like, actually, that was a bad idea. And ultimately, it just didn't pan out. Uh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, look, I think anyone looks back at their career and mm -hmm. recognizes that that not anyone, but most people um, find embarrassing things they did, yep. decisions they made, behavior they exhibited. That is, they've matured and learned more. Um, you know, for me, that was my first CFO role back in 2018 when I joined Planful. And there's just so much, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And for me, it, it kind of fell into two big buckets of, of learning. You know, one yeah. was what to prioritize. Um, there's a million priorities and, and learning what to prioritize. And I'll mm -hmm. double click on that in a minute. And then the other is just the way you interact with other execs. And, you know, there's this whole concept of the CFO is now cross-functional. But it's a really tough role to play because, yes, you're a business partner with your other executives, 100%. Mm -hmm. That's the way it works now. And it, there's an expectation that you collaborate. You, uh, yes, and you also still have to play the role of the CFO you know, or make tough decisions to delay investments or make trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And I think you know I balanced it pretty well, 7 out of 10, but I think I'm much higher now. You know, Maybe I'm an 8 or a 9 out of 10 now. Um, and so it was just this big sort of interpersonal, emotional intelligence learning I had that I think everybody who's a new leader should prioritize. And it's hard to do. As a new leader, you have a lot of pressure on you, a lot of eyes on you, and you need to establish you know, a voice that carries some weight in the boardroom and in the executive room. Um, so anyway, that's another discussion, interpersonal stuff. And then the prioritization. You know, I came in and took with me all the stuff that I had been doing as a VP for the last several years, um, which is being very in the weeds, being very in the weeds, master of the number, master of the models and, and all of the analysis. And you've got to lift, elevate yourself as, as an executive, right? You have to spend a lot more time thinking about the big picture items, opportunities, mm -hmm. seeing around corners. And it took me a good quarter or two to let go, pry those models out of my you know grip and trust my team to, to run those and me be the reviewer mm -hmm. and me be, and it's really hard. I mean, th these are not groundbreaking stuff. You learn a lot about other people as you progress in your career and you learn a lot about letting go and elevating yourself and mm -hmm. filling the new role. But let me turn it around on you because you're, you're a newly minted executive in the last couple of years. How would you answer that question? Like what, what are the learnings from when mm. you started, when so, you were first yeah, elevated yeah. to that VP C-suite level? the things you were doing versus what you're doing now, which appears to be podcasting. <laughs> yeah, professional <laughs> podcaster here. Um, yeah, good question. You know, I think that 
giving up control, I, I, especially in the finance side, giving up control of the model or in the accounting side, like giving up control of like every piece of the month in close, I think is a big piece of elevating yourself from like the doer to the the manager. And I think that was a, a big piece around that. I think that I, I agree with you. And I think around how can you be creating value in other parts for the whole organization versus just a finance team? And I think that's the piece mm -hmm. of like, that is a hard piece to jump because it's very easy to, for you to just jump into what you own and where you can, where, what your domain is and what your expertise is. And I think it's, I, I frankly, I spend a lot of time with our sales and marketing team because that's what a company is all about, right? And like a lot of that is around helping them, enabling them, reviewing data, understanding, you know, very detailed KPIs that are really sales and marketing KPIs. But yes, they impact the model, but impact the business as just an example. And I think I've been doing that in a lot of these roles. And I think a good head of finance you know, at especially a growth stage company, but any business is being, you know, being really involved as much as you can in terms of how, how can you take the analytical skill sets and maybe the business knowledge that you have as executive and help empower other teams and help them make the other decisions along the way. And I think that you have to build, figure out how to make yourself, make the time for that and the, like the mental capacity for that, that you're not just, you know, doing a lot of manual work or in the model and like, how do you elevate your own team to really own a lot of that to, like, to your point, be help you be the customer so that you can do this other sort of work that no one else is doing. And yes, the CEO should be doing that too. And you can be doing that with the, you know, the actual management team around like what's next, how do we evaluate other opportunities? What are the big risks out there that we should be thinking about? Like, should we run this extra piece of analysis of like this extra downside scenario, but really thinking through that is you're not maybe in the model doing it, but like you're thinking like, oh, under this circumstance, this could happen. Let's see what happens to our debt covenants in this case. And so all that sort of addition can only be happening if you're not in the weeds on a daily basis. 100%. That last bit there about asking the questions that you simply will not have on the brain if you're too in the weeds is a huge part of being an executive. And that takes carving out time to reflect on the macro environment, to list out all the risks you see to the business, to figure out how to mitigate them and track the leading indicators against those risks. And you can't do that if you're updating the forecast. Mm -hmm. You just can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an interesting um, framework I've used is to think about your time allocation. So a lot of people hate pie charts, whatever. Just think you have 100%. And what percent of that should you spend with your team turning the knobs in the actual work? What percent of it should you spend with other executives? What percent of it should you be spending with external stakeholders, making sure you're managing them and getting their feedback and making sure they know they're heard? And what percentage of it should you spend doing what you just said, which is, you know, sort of putting uh, walls around yourself such that you block out external noise and you can actually sit down and reflect on the environment in which you're operating, you know, ought we to be pursuing M&A? And if so, what would that look like? You know, should we raise capital? And if so, when? And, you know, just spending the time to be what I call being creative. That's a creative mindset to think about things that aren't directly in front of you and completely obvious, but you have to carve out time to do that. And if you're always being reactive, that is putting out fires, you know, running from one place to another, dealing with problems, you know, figuring out if uh, the people who uh, are gifting each other a Rolex are, are sleeping together, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff, right? You, you need to elevate above that. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage anyone who's making a change in role at, you know, theoretically to promotion, develop the time map, mm -hmm. the allocation that you were just in and think about how it should change and translate that to hours in a week. Maybe you're working 50, 55, maybe you're lucky and it's 40. 
hours a week and really force yourself to, to let your calendar reflect that allocation. I think you have to force it, right? If you block out time to do that type of creative thinking about risks and opportunities and you, and you defend that time, you'll do it, right? Unless you're going to fall down a click call on, you know, 10 things accountants need not to get fired uh, on, on, a, you know, on a team pay blog. Um, then, you know, you carve out that time and you do it. And so to, to me, you know, if I could go back from when I initially accepted a CFO role, I would do that exercise mm. or use that framework. Yeah. Allocation before and what I know the allocation should be and force it rather than sort of hope that you get there. Yeah, that, that's really interesting advice to a first time CFO or head of finance of like, what are the things like I'm already working a full time job. If I'm going to take on more things, what are the things I'm going to stop doing and how am I going to get to my place so I can stop doing those things? Because otherwise, like, I'm just going to drive myself crazy mm. trying to now work 60, 70 hours a week, which just isn't you know, sustainable or, you know, to your point, like, you're just never going to be strategic working that much. And I mean, that gets to the, the number one skill I think any executive, any manager can develop and deploy that will really be decisive in their success is the ability to recruit and grow and manage mm -hmm. uh, teams. Your team is always, always your superpower, really. It's it, even more than automation and develop that team, provide them with compelling work opportunities. I mean, that's how you get yourself the time to do the other, the new allocation and those critical um, yep. sort of executive functional tasks is you need to be able to rely on a team and have continuity. I mean, the number one way to, to kind of forecast the failure of an executive is do they have constant churn on their team? If they're not able to retain employees and grow them um, and trust them with work, I mean, you might as well go home now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a good, maybe a good segue. It's like, we talked about a little bit about like what your advice would be to a new CFO. Um, beyond any other tips and maybe what would you say they should be thinking about in their first 90 days? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just, just one man. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure 10 years from now I'll have a different answer as I, as I get even wiser, but I'll tell you what I just did coming back in a plan full that I found really helpful. It was all, all about the people really. Uh, so I, I had my, um, EA put on my calendar about 30 meetings. Mm -hmm. So there were only 20 minute meetings, but 30 meetings with sort of all of the executives and then all of the L2s. And it was an investment in getting to know them. I wanted to know about their personal life, if they were willing to tell me, told mm -hmm. them about mine, where I lived, you know, married, one kid, you know, establish that connection because it'll be useful down the road when, you know, they're afraid that maybe you're too busy to ask you something. You've already established that right? I have an open door policy. I want you to come to me and vice versa, right? I know where to find you. And then I also developed a map of pain for those people. So it's exhausting, but I found out the three primary pain points in all of those 30 people's day to day, um, and then developed that map of pain. And uh, my agenda would be focused on solving as much of that as possible. Anywhere I was capable, and it might be just a fraction of it as a CFO, but anywhere I was capable of immediately taking wins down and adding value in the org to build that trust and partnership, I wanted to do that. Once I developed that map of pain and gotten to know my team and got the right people, I think, in the right seats on my team, we had a planning summit. Just about a month in, a month and a half in, we had to get the budget approved. And at that planning summit, I shared with them 360 feedback I had gathered in addition to the map of pain. Mm -hmm. I had gone out and asked for stakeholder feedback on my team. And then I had asked them for their pain, which I mentioned earlier. And so this gave me a whole bunch of data points on where, where we should prioritize and focus for my first year back. 
Um, and the priorities kind of bucketed down into three things. It was, some of them were cross-functional, solve things like the procurement process, solve things like commission calculations that other people are vibrating on because they're not working and my team owns them. Yep. One of them was advancing the maturity curve of our team. So what are we not doing today that we could do that would be beneficial to the business, drive value? One of those was real-time forecasting and planful, ingesting the leading indicators from our CRM, like pipeline generation, and using that to automate our forecast update. And then the last was sort of closing the debt, the debt in the team, empty positions, mm -hmm. and the debt in the systems and processes. And so, you know, that was that that would be the advice is I would have. I would say have a very structured plan, 30, 60, 90, where you know what you're going to be doing most of that time. Obviously, you're going to have to put out fires at some times. Um, and then make sure that it involves the people, right? Do not just sit in your office and read over the board reports. Um, you know, you got to do that probably before you start. Um, but make sure you're interacting with as many people as possible and adding value to them. Um, you know, a lot of people use the word servant leadership. I think that's a little dramatic, but it's just about being a good partner. Mm -hmm. Right, being a good partner to your team and being a good partner cross-functionally elsewhere in the org. Love it, and I think starting with the people first is I think is a good point around this. Like, um, I'm just reading a book called Nonviolent Communication. It's you know all about like really centering it on the other person's experience when you, as a communicator. And I think that's so much about, especially executive roles, where it's so much about the interpersonal relations of like to your point, starting with executives, but of course down to L two and like really getting people's feedback of like what can be. Um, how, how, how does this other team want to work with my team and how does this person want to work with me? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You know, the, the maturity to, um, you know, know how your communication, what you're saying is being received on, on the other end. I mean, that is some next level stuff, Pete, right? Like, you know, it, it means that you're thoughtful enough to even consider it number one, and then it's a hard skill to develop, right? You really have to be able to step into their shoes and think, okay, the CFO is bringing um, a problem to me, you know, that's kind of scary, right? <laughs> and so choosing the right club out of your golf bag in terms of communication style to make sure that experience is productive for everyone in the conversation is is something that I think it it it, it takes a, a sort of special person who's, who's reached a certain level of maturity to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, before we wrap up, I want to kind of just, what's next for Planful coming up for you? Um, anything you're looking forward to? Yeah, well, what's next for Planful is an awesome Q2. Uh, so we've got, you know, nine business days left here and, and things are looking great. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm working every day to make sure the sales team has the support they need. Um, no, I'm being cheeky, you know. Yeah, so yeah. what's what's next for Planful? You know, fundamentally, it's to continue to focus on building this product, mm -hmm. enhancing it every single day, rolling out new capabilities around AI and ML, mm -hmm. rolling out cross-functional capabilities to HR users and sales users marketing users, and then mm. just putting this tool in the hands of the people who can benefit from it. So it's really a growth story. And, and it's not more complicated than that. I don't think it has to be more complicated than that. Did that answer your question? You know, that, that what's next for Planful is just more, yeah, yeah. more joy with our customers. And so find me, you know, I don't want to be too sales oriented, but if you're listening to this and you're interested in a great planning, forecasting, budgeting uh, system, find me on LinkedIn and I'll get you set up with the right people. Great. We'll, we'll definitely find Dan Fletcher on LinkedIn. 
Well, you definitely had some great insights. And I, thanks so much for being uh, such an interesting, engaging, um, and challenging guest. Um, and so as uh, you know, real call to action, everyone here is, of course, follow Dan on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to him there directly. And please remember to subscribe to this podcast uh, so you don't miss a me- an episode. What, what do the kids say? Smash the, bu- smash the subscribe button. Smash. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Pete.